This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 142, Bullies. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. Bullies are people who take what they want at the expense of the weak, from the short kid on the playground to the minimum wage worker to the next nation in the path of a warmonger. Most of us have suffered bullying, and many of us have inflicted it. This week, we discuss David's failed and selfish leadership, the pros and cons of public whippings, the downfall of a megachurch and its mega pastor, and the real bully at the Hammond's game table. The name may surprise you. Let's start with what I've been preaching. David was wrong. Let's get that straight. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, David used his position to impose his will on a woman. Then, when it didn't go his way, he arranged for the woman's husband to die. The Bible doesn't address Bathsheba's culpability because it doesn't matter. David saw what he wanted, and he used his position to take it. Ladies, if you want to use this as a cautionary tale to present yourself in a discreet manner or to honor your wedding vows or to not get carried away with external factors like power and prominence and popularity, by all means, go ahead and do so. But understand, this is at its core a story about men like David. And bottom line is, we're all like David to one degree or another. And actually, the life of David does a pretty good job of illustrating the way that things should be done in these circumstances, rather than how things were done in this particular circumstance. Leadership goes out and works. It accomplishes a task. Slaying giants is a metaphorical expression these days, describing something that is virtually impossible, if not impossible. And yet David goes out and does exactly that. When no one else would, when his older brothers would not, when Saul himself would not, David takes it upon himself to do the things that leaders do. He confronts the enemy, he challenges the enemy in the name of God, and then he strikes the enemy. There's no such thing as leadership from behind. Leading means going forward. Leadership means taking the reins. It means actually accomplishing things or dying in the effort. I find it remarkable that as soon as David gets his ducks in a row, as soon as he's established as king and gets all of the important pressing matters settled, he reaches out for someone to serve, someone from Jonathan's family. He finds a man named Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel chapter 9, someone who is completely helpless, who can offer nothing to David, except for perhaps a sideways challenge to his own crown. And yet David shows kindness to Mephibosheth. He lifts him up. He puts him at his own table. This level of kindness is what leadership should be all about, not about taking, 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 as is the case with most people, frankly, in David's position, but rather using the power that is at our disposal to serve other people. On David's good days, that's exactly what he did. He was ultimately serving the nation. And when leadership finds those who are willing to follow, leadership honors those followers. This is a sacred trust that has been placed in the leader's hand. These people say, I am going to follow this person, including and particularly in life or death situations. That is a remarkable kind of thing, and it should not be a cause for ego. It should not be a cause for self-indulgence. It should be an opportunity for us to honor other people. I love the story in 2 Samuel chapter 23, as at the end of David's life, we're recounting the highlights of his life, many of which occurred before he even became king. There's a story about him and his company out in the wilderness. He is besought by the enemy and pinned down in a difficult situation. And 
he recognizes that he's just right down the road from his own family homestead. And he remarks how wonderful it would be if he could just get a cold drink of water from his family well. And those who care about him break through enemy lines and seek out this water simply to make their leader happy. David acknowledges this and does not abuse the privilege that he has as the leader of these men, but honors them. He pours this out as an offering before the Lord. I'm not going to benefit in some shallow sort of way because my men were willing to give their life for me. I'm not going to be the beneficiary of that. I'm going to use this honor that they have placed in me to honor them. And ultimately, of course, leadership is going to give an account. Leadership is going to answer. We see that in the Bathsheba story, 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 13, after Nathan points the finger at David, he acknowledges, I have sinned before the Lord. That's what we're all going to have to do. We're all going to have to answer for the things that have been placed in our charge, whether it's fathers and husbands over families, whether it is elders over local congregations, whether it is bosses over workplaces, whoever you are, wherever your position is, if you are in position of power, if you're in position of strength, God requires you to exercise that in a responsible and loving and serving way, not to honor yourself, but rather to honor others and ultimately to honor him also. It is imperative that we find the strength of character to lead in the way that he has asked us to, rather than to take advantage of our situation for our own benefit. Lives are depending on this, so we need to make sure we do this right, which actually brings us to the next point. This is what I've been reading. Mutiny on the Bounty by Charles Nordoff and James Norman Hall is a novel based on the real-life events of the late 1800s, in which Captain William Bly sailed the HMS Bounty halfway across the world from England to Tahiti with the aid of his crew to harvest young breadfruit trees in an effort to assist with the hunger problem elsewhere in the British Empire. In hindsight, it's difficult to imagine this huge brouhaha happened over fruit trees, but nevertheless, as you're probably aware, Fletcher Christian and several other sailors on the bounty took command of the ship and set Bly and his supporters in a small boat and allowed them to, if they possibly could, find their way back to England on their own. They were going to stay in the South Seas and live the high life. Somehow, some way, in an amazing testimony to how good of a captain Bly actually was, they found their way back to England and immediately instigated mutiny proceedings against Christian and the others. And the British Navy tracked them down as best they could anyway, keelhauled them, took them back to England for trial, many of which were sentenced to death. If you are thousands of miles away from home, and if death was literally right around the corner from any number of places, and the only way you could possibly survive is for everybody to do exactly what they were supposed to do, exactly the way they were supposed to do it. You absolutely need a leader of extreme competence. And so if the captain decided that a certain sailor needed to be lashed, most of the crew is going to support that because they realize their life is in the captain's hands and the captain knows better than anybody else does. And it's very easy for us 250 years later to say that was overkill, that should have been done differently or whatever. But the solution to this is not to oversimplify things. It might be easy for us to say we're on the side of kindness. Well, that's a simplistic way of looking at things. 
if anyone wants to know what happens, where the best approach by the authority figure is simply letting people do whatever they want to do, I suggest you pick up Lord of the Flies. Maybe we'll cover that on a future podcast. Human society is very easily, especially in desperate situations, going to drift into a region that is absolutely destructive to everyone involved. Being nice to people isn't going to fix that. Being nice to people isn't going to change human character. But on the other hand, erring on the side of power isn't going to help either. That feeds into the corruption that is also part of the human character. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And the captain of a ship in the 18th century is pretty close to absolute power. And we see it working in the character of Bly. Again, 250 years removed from the events, it's difficult to tell exactly what happened, but it seems to be pretty much understood by everyone involved that Bly took advantage of his position, and sometimes at the direct expense of his crew. Simply maintaining order because we absolutely have to have order is not a rationalization for corruption. So if you can't err on the side of kindness and you can't err on the side of power, what can you do? Well, you can get it right. That's what you can do. What, you mean get it right all the time? Yes. I mean, get it right all the time. Well, I don't think I'm up to that. Well, I'll spoil the ending for you on that. You're not up to that. None of us is. I have some experience as a parent. Uh, Maybe you do too. Maybe you have some experience overseeing people in the workplace. Maybe you're an elder of the local church. If you make any number of reasonably difficult decisions, judgment calls, you will testify with me that our accuracy record is far from 100%. Nevertheless, that is the objective. If that seems like a daunting task, welcome to leadership. In Acts chapter 20, as Paul meets with the Ephesian elders in Miletus, he tells them, starting in verse number 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in from among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be on the alert, remembering that day and night for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. I'm struck by the phrase there in verse number 28 that they were supposed to shepherd the church which was purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. That should give sufficient impetus to this task here. Jesus died for this church. Now, what are you going to do for this church? Well, I'd do more if I had time. I'd do more if it were easy for me. It's never going to be easy. And the purpose here is not to discourage anyone from leadership, either in a local church or any other situation, but to realize authority has to get it right. That being in charge of others, being in charge even of our own lives, requires careful consideration, requires prayer, requires intense introspection. Ultimately, it's all about your character, what kind of a person you are. When it comes to leadership, oftentimes we gravitate to a personality, a personality type. We want someone who is strong or someone who is confident or someone who is even physically mature and of solid stature, someone we can look to with confidence. But when we see leaders described, particularly leaders in the local church, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, we see men of character. We don't see people of accomplishment. We don't see people with notches on their belt. We see people who can be trusted in these situations. 
they will not be overly kind because they love the truth too much. They will not be overly cruel because they love their fellow human beings too much. It is in their character to guide people in the proper way. They've shown it in their own families. They've shown it in their own lives. The easy thing is to lead out of sheer kindness or to lead out of sheer power. But nobody said leadership was going to be easy. And the examples of abuses of this, the examples of doing things poorly, not just in the Bible, but also in our own personal experience, ought to give us pause as we consider the authority that's placed in our hands and make us prayerful and dutiful as we try to carry out our responsibilities in a worthy manner. Not everybody does that, by the way, which brings up the next point. This is what I've been hearing. Christianity Today recently completed a short-run podcast entitled The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. If you are interested in the workings of megachurches in the modern era, how to do it wrong, essentially, I would encourage you to give that a listen. It's all a story about Mars Hill, what became a megachurch in the Seattle, Washington area, and especially its pastor or leader or founder, whatever term you want to use, Mark Driscoll. Ultimately, Mark Driscoll was Mars Hill. Everything that was done in that church was about him, and when he exited the scene, the entire thing fell apart. And if I misrepresent Mr. Driscoll here in some way, uh, somebody contact him and have him reach out to me. I would love to have his side of the story here. I would love to have that conversation. In lieu of any personal conversation, I will simply point out the things that were pointed out to me in this podcast, which inevitably resulted in not only the absolute explosion of spiritual activity in Seattle, resulting in remarkable and sustained growth, in this church, but also the explosion, pardon the expression, at the end, as everything fell apart, as there was nothing left but fragments here, there, and everywhere. And not to oversimplify things, but the problems with Mars Hill were the problems with Mark Driscoll. It was always seen as a reflection of his own character. That's the way Mark wanted it. That's the way he insisted upon it, frankly. Which kind of leads to the first point that I would like to discuss, which is a rampant ego. It's all about me. It's all about me. This is difficult for us as human beings. We ought to get over it as Christians because we realize our very existence in Christ is self-sacrifice, putting other people first and putting Jesus first of all. But that's not the way we were wired. We are forced to overcome that tendency in Jesus. Our natural tendency is to gravitate towards strong personalities or else, in the very rare occasion, be those strong personalities. The cult of personality is real, and it's probably significant that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, as Paul warns his young protege about troubles that are to come, and he describes these characters that are going to come up and corrupt things and turn local churches and even large groups of local churches in an otherwise direction, as he describes people who are lovers of money, arrogant, revilers, without self-control, etc., the very first characteristic that he gives is lovers of self. It's all about me. It's all about what I need for myself. This may be the ultimate and the greatest battle that we fight as Christians, coming to grips with the idea that it's not about me. And it's not just a megachurch kind of thing. 
That's something that I struggle with as a preacher and have for years. It's something that every decent preacher I know struggles with. We know that there is the opportunity for ego there. We know there is the opportunity for self-service. And that is a battle that we pray over and that we study over on a constant basis. But it's part of a larger consideration of carnality that we as humans all wrestle with. We all struggle with, and occasionally we all fail with. Carnality, living in the flesh, being consumed with physical kinds of things. This is an ever-present problem, one that we never completely solve. The situation with some of the preachers of Paul's acquaintance that he alludes to in Philippians chapter 3 has gone over the edge with regard to such things. Their God is their appetite, he says. All that matters to them is feeding themselves. What serves my own interests is all that I am interested in. If it puts food in my stomach, if it puts money in my wallet, that's what I care about. Covetousness is akin to idolatry, tantamount to idolatry, Paul says in Colossians 3 and verse number 5. That's what Paul's talking about here. When you desire more than anything else to have what other people have, more than they have, as much as you possibly can have, that is essentially turning your own appetites, your own stomach into a god. Every bit as real as Baal or Asherah or Molech or any other god that you may want to read about in the Bible. There's a real shallowness about all of this, an obsession over appearance, what we look like on the outside. When we become obsessed with how we present ourselves as opposed to what we are presenting, we set ourselves up for failure because ultimately it's not about what's on the outside. It's about what is on the inside, which is reflected in what is on the outside. The outside ought to take care of itself. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus condemns these scribes and Pharisees who were all about washing the outside of the bowl, but didn't care anything about the inside of the bowl. As one who has done his fair share of washing dishes over the years, I can assure you, if you do a good job, an exemplary job of cleaning the inside of the bowl, the outside of the bowl kind of tends to take care of itself. We're not suggesting that you pay it no attention at all, but the important thing is on the inside. And when the inside gets properly cleaned, the outside tends to be clean also. And when Jesus cleans us on the inside, our outside gets clean as well. This concern on our parts for making sure that we present the right kind of image. In the case of Driscoll, it was the boisterous and angry and somewhat violent person. When it becomes about your image, instead of about the image of Jesus, we've lost our way. We start making converts to ourselves rather than converts to Jesus. And when we are ultimately only focusing on ourselves, it will inevitably result in a disregard for other people. We may serve other people in a sideways fashion because it serves our own personal long-term interests, but selfish people ultimately will act selfishly. We need to consistently have the attitude that Jesus had. Philippians chapter 2, verse number 4, don't just consider your own interests, but also the interests of others. Other people are supposed to be counted as more important than ourselves. That's what Paul says Jesus did. That's what Paul says we need to do ourselves. Marcel serves as a cautionary tale of people who insist on having their way and claim it's for the greater good. After all, look at how many souls we're saving. Look at how many people we're baptizing. We're leasing out Quest Field in Seattle because we're serving Jesus Christ. No other church can do this. Well, that may or may not be true. But ultimately, if we examine ourselves, we may find that we are not really doing this for the greater cause. 
We are simply pushing people around so that we ourselves can be glorified, so that we can receive the credit, so that we can have the microphone in our hand. Hijacking Jesus for personal gain is sinful. It is the ultimate expression of carnality. 1 Timothy 6 verse 6 warns us about people who see that the cause of Christ is a means of gain. And he means carnal gain, short-term gain, physical gain, visible gain. That kind of attitude will kill a soul, and if left to run rampant, it will kill a church. It needs to be stopped. If the individual sees it in his own life, by all means, that's the easiest way. Let's just stop it at its source. But if we see diatrophies running in the church, rampant, it is our obligation as people who love the Lord and who frankly love diatrophies to intervene and stop this before cancer begins to spread. The bully can very easily have his way in these situations, but ultimately we need to be able to take a stand, lest we suffer the same kind of fate as Mars Hill did. This is what I've been playing. My daughter Kylie occasionally listens to the podcast, and if this is one of those occasions where she is, let me make sure I preface my remarks by saying this. Kylie, I love you very much. I enjoy your presence very much. There is no recreational activity out there from playing a board game to climbing Mount Everest that I would not be eager to join you in. She knows that, of course. I don't have to say it, but I am saying it because of Mystery House, which is a game that we happened upon a couple of years ago on vacation. Mystery House is very interesting. It is a box that contains a box, basically, and the box represents a house, and the house contains a mystery, and we're trying to figure out the mystery. The house has windows, a series of windows down all four sides, and the four people sitting on the four sides get a certain perspective into the house, into the mystery, essentially. And in the top of the box, there are slits where cards are slipped through to obscure your vision. So you can't look all the way through the house. You see a wall or you see a mirror, or maybe you see a couple of rooms in, and then you see a wall or a chair or some such thing. Everybody has a different perspective on this. We'll talk about this more, Lord willing, next week. And so the idea is that each of us brings to the table the information that they have, the clues that they are able to ferret out, and we make collective decisions. If we make a bad decision, if we guess wrongly about something, we're going to lose some time. And all of this is on the clock. You have an hour, and you want to spend your time wisely, and so you want to make good decisions the whole time. And that means everybody coming to a consensus. And Kylie, bless her heart, is a bit of an alpha gamer. I have seen people far worse than this. But if there is a decision to be made in these kind of situations, Kylie is usually going to be the one who makes it. That's just her character. And I don't say that in a disparaging sort of way. It's just the way it tends to work out. And in a board game situation, we've decided to not let that be a big deal because it's not a big deal. A decision has to be made. She appears to feel strongly about this, and, and I don't. So why not? We'll go ahead and go that way. It's not necessarily, though, a formula for a uniting, cohesive, and enjoyable experience. If this comes across like I'm calling Kylie a bully, I apologize. That's not what I'm saying here, and I trust that she understands that's not what I'm saying. But it is very easy for us to accept the road of least resistance. When a decision needs to be made and one person feels more strongly than anybody else, that may or may not be the best direction to go, but it is the voice that's coming from the loudest person in the room, and so we go that way. It's made with good intentions, 
No one is hurt directly by this, so why not? doesn't seem to be any harm that's being done. And maybe there's not. Then again, maybe we're not doing as much good as we might. It's reasonable to assume that if we were in a cooperative kind of environment, everybody has something to offer. Everybody has ideas. Everybody has some value. And the best way to approach a problem, a situation, a circumstance, is to mine from every available resource, come together cooperatively, and make an informed decision together. Well, that's a whole lot easier said than done, we have found in the Hammonds family. And so as a result of that, we tend to stay away from cooperative type games. Maybe we ought to take the other approach, though. Maybe we ought to force ourselves into these kind of environments so that we can get better. Because quite frankly, cooperation is a skill that we as humans need to develop and that we do not necessarily excel in without deliberate help. I bring this up in the context of the local church because not all bullies are created equal in the local church. Not every bully is a diatrophies. Sometimes the bully is literally smarter than anybody else or the only one who is motivated, the only one who wants to do things, etc. But we sometimes lose sight of what our cooperative relationship is in the body of Jesus Christ. We convince ourselves that the job, quote-unquote the job, is to find a local preacher or to install elders or install deacons, make sure there are teachers in every Bible class, that sort of thing. And I want to emphasize that that is a very narrow and limiting way of looking at the body of Christ. This is not about events. This is about our character. This is about our nature. This is about our identity. Our job as Christians in the locality is not to make sure that everything gets done. Our job is to be the body of Christ. And as Paul mentions in Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that is by its very nature a cooperative relationship where we are interdependent upon one another. The ear is not excused from doing its job poorly because the eye is really, really good at being an eye, nor can the eye overlap its responsibility and take responsibility from the ear so that the weak ear is not really that big of a deal. Everybody has a part to play. Everybody needs to play their part. In Ephesians chapter 4, in verse number 1, Paul writes, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice how many times he emphasizes this cooperative nature that we have as the body. This is not about me being the best that I possibly can be, and even perhaps being seen to be the best I possibly can be. This is about me finding a connection with brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can come together and be bigger than we were before. The goal is fellowship. The goal is being the body of Christ. And really the amount of talent in the room or how many people have that talent is almost irrelevant to the situation. It's more about us finding that heart of service, that heart of love that we see in Jesus and exemplifying that as we go. That can be a rather frustrating thing for the talented people as we are called upon to be patient with one another, to wait for one another. It would be so much better if everybody just do what I told them to do. Well, in the short term, perhaps. This week, we've been discussing situations that come up in local churches where one person gets their way all the time. It is not Godly. It is not safe. It is not 
conducive to the spirit that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians. It's not really what we want to do. It misses the whole point of local churches. In Galatians chapter 6, verse number 1, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another, for each one will bear his own load. We answer to God as individuals, but we work as a community. We work as a body. And as I am bearing my own load, as I'm bearing my own burden, I have opportunity to help other people bear their burdens. And I do so in the spirit of gentleness, the text says here, realizing that it's not about proving that I am better than anybody else or smarter than anybody else, that my ideas are better than anybody else's ideas. It's about us coming together in fellowship so that we can collectively honor the one whose name we wear. I may think in any given moment that it'd be easier if I just got my way all the time, but there's no way I'm ever going to get the results that Jesus wants for me or for my brethren if I go that way. The only way that this is accomplished is if we cooperate with one another, if we see things from other people's perspectives, if we trust one another, if we love one another, if we work together with one another. If we let our egos get out of the way a little bit, we'll be able to do a better job of it. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.